Okay, good morning everyone. Welcome to Glenlock Baptist Church. As people still arrive, I'm thinking of the verse, I think it's Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. So we're glad to be here. We're glad to have you here. If you're a first-time visitor here at Glenlock, thank you for coming. Uh, if you would fill out information in front of you and put that in the offering boxes as you exit, we can have your personal information and, and, and show our appreciation for you being here. Hey, a, a good change, we think, as you enter into our services. Um, during COVID, we quit printing paper bulletins. Today is the first day paper bulletins have returned, okay? So each week, yeah, you'll actually, if you're like me, you're very tangible and hands-on. But uh, someone asked me if we had lost a year, because if you look at the front of it, it says January 28, 2023. <laughs> so I just want to let you know, okay? I've been signing my checks 2023, you know, for about a month now. No, joking. Uh, that's, you know, it's 2024 and we're aware of that. So, uh, but these are very helpful. I want to thank Bryson and Crystal and Emily for, for putting this together. Um, we're going to have an order of service and announcements. And that's actually what I'm going to move into at the moment. Please look in the bulletin at your announcement weekly because we're limited in what we can say from here about all these events. But the particular one I want to emphasize as we gather is the February Fantastic uh, event through Word of Life. Today is the last day to sign up. So see Bryson, if you have any questions, there's a sign-up sheet if you have any questions. Um, this Wednesday, of course, our students are going to Franklin to the GPAC for a combined service with other churches. But our adult group is still going to meet here and something special. We meet every Wednesday night at 6.15 for Bible study, but I do want you to know that this Wednesday night, June Cho from Korea, who's been with us, June, if you'll stand up again, and his daughter Faith, I think this is the, um, this is the third straight week that they have been with us, so we are, we are very blessed to be hosting them, and, and Bill and his family, so Wednesday night, June will share with the adults, uh, I've already heard a good bit of what he shares. It's, it's, it's excellent. It's very helpful and very encouraging. I want to welcome Tim Williams, the Carrollton Baptist Associational Missionary, who's been here, what, a couple of years, Tim? One year? Man, it feels like longer. <laughs> I'm just, Tim, will you stand up? Because a lot of people have met you and a lot of people haven't. So if you don't know what that is or who that is, Dan Dockery, of course, served in that role for many, many years, and he is the new Dan Dockery. So that may help you get a context of, of what his role is uh, in our association, and, and we're blessed to, ha to have you with us, Tim. Trying to make sure that I've touched on that. I know that, um, James, where's James? James, why don't you go ahead and say something about the Nicaragua uh, luncheon, and then I'll, I'll share one other thought with our church.
Amen. Thank you, James. Hey, you'll notice today is our day for the month uh, taking communion in our morning service. So Bryson is preaching this morning after he preaches the word. Uh, we will observe communion. So deacons, uh, at that point, if you'll come up, we'll serve the congregation. Hey, I want to let all of you know that, and some of you already know this, that uh, our dear friend, Miss Lois McCann's son, passed on Thursday. Um, she is in South Carolina with the rest of her family. Her son, Aaron, was 43 years old. Um, I want to thank our church for the love that you have had for her already. Uh, I talked with her this morning. She's very encouraged, and she's doing pretty well. She shared some wonderful things with me uh, about the community there and how they're loving her and Aaron's wife, Michelle, and their children through this time. Um, I do want you to know that there's a service tomorrow in South Carolina at 4, a memorial service for Aaron, but that we will also host one probably the end of this week, and I'll communicate to everyone. So that there is a service in South Carolina tomorrow, but there will be a service most likely here at Glenlock at some point soon. So I will do, we will do our very best to communicate with you uh, on that. But let's be very prayerful and mindful uh, for Miss Lois, for her family uh, in their time of need. So Jerry Prince is going to come and read Titus 2 and pray for us, Jerry. Thank you for Good morning. Good morning. Titus chapter 2. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. <clears throat> but you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are, submit to their, are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who, who came and who died for our sins. And Father, I pray that today all of us who know you 
and who have placed saving faith in you, Father, and who have asked you to be our Savior, that, that we would live a, a life worthy of the calling that you've placed on us. Father, that we would be yielded to the Holy Spirit, that we'd be students of the Word of God, Father, and that we would be uh, uh, constant in prayer. Father, I pray that you would be with us in the service today. Pray that you would be with Bryson as he brings a message. Open our hearts to what you've prepared in him for us to hear. Go with us, lead, guide, and direct us in all that we do. And Father, we ask a special blessing on Lois and and, and, uh, and Amy and uh, and Jay and, and Aaron's wife and his daughter and his son. Father, just be with them, the whole family, Father. Uh, just wrap your loving arms around them and, and help us be to them the church that you would have us be. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. If you'll stand, we're going to begin worship with singing There's Power in the Blood. Would you be free from the burdens of sin? There's power in the blood. Working power in 
be seated.
Sam, we're going to sing together again. And I'm going to grab a hymnal. If you want to grab a hymnal with me, we're going to sing a song called It Took a Miracle that Neil wanted to sing and that Miss Joyce wanted to sing and that I'm learning still. But it's really beautiful, and it goes perfectly with the signs we have been um, studying. So if you would like to grab a hymnal, too, it is page number? 494. 494.
Let's pray this morning together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, God, Lord, thank you so much um, just for beautiful hymns, God, that remind us um, just of your miraculous power, God, and your mercy and your grace, God, that there is nothing more powerful than your blood, Lord, and that you, your son shed his blood for us, but that it didn't end there, God, that he rose three days later, Lord, and that was just one of many miracles, Lord, that he um, blessed us with here on earth, God. Lord, we just pray that you be with us in our message as Bryson comes and shares this morning the third sign, God. And, Lord, as we continue to go through these seven signs, God, Lord, I just pray that our eyes will be open to notice the little miracles around us too, God. Lord, we love you and praise you and thank you when we pray for our kids going to children's church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. She waited right till the end to wake up. <laughs> Children are dismissed to go in children's church in the back. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. I'm going to take a minute to reorganize my brain. Um, you know, kids make everything interesting, so, um, but good. As many of you know, we are making our way through the seven signs found in the um, Gospel of John that point to Jesus as Messiah, and so... Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've looked at um, John chapter 2 and Jesus turning water to wine at the wedding feast. And then in John chapter 4, right before this, Jesus healed the official son. And so each of these miracles ultimately point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And this morning is much the same. As we come to John chapter 5, we're going to look at actually at verses 1 through 18 of John chapter 5, and we're going to see this third sign in the book of John that points us to Jesus as the Son of God. And as I thought about this emphasis on signs this week, one show that's pretty predominant at my house right now is the show Bluey. I don't know if any of you have seen Bluey. If you are in here and you don't have a child, I suggest go home, still watch Bluey. Okay, it's a great show. Um, I watch it by myself sometimes. But one of the episodes recently was the, the kids, Bluey and Bingo, these are all dogs, by the way, if you haven't seen the show, Bluey and Bingo, they are getting on to their dad for telling them what to do, basically. They believe that the dad's instructions are him bossing them around. And so in order to make the point that oftentimes instructions are good, they go on a little trip, and the dad decides to ignore all of the signs that the navigation tells him to do. So it says, hey, turn right in 500 feet. And he says, no, I don't think so. And he keeps going straight. Or it says, take a left here, and he keeps going the way that he's going. And eventually they find themselves at, at, a, at a dead end. And he says, well, kids, we're lost. And what we've noticed here is, it is not the issue that the dad did not see the signs. The issue is that he did not respond rightly to the signs. And so this whole 
this whole thought process is we don't just want to see what Jesus is saying here, but we want to respond rightly to what he's saying here. Because if I see the sign and ignore the sign, the sign will do me no good. And so this morning, I want us to see the third sign, and I want us to, to respond rightly to the instructions and to the, the miracle that Jesus shows us in his word this morning. And so if you have um, notes and you want to write this down, the main idea of the passage to me is this. Jesus' powerful and compassionate acts of grace are always intended to lead to a life of repentance and worship. Jesus' powerful and compassionate acts of grace are always intended to lead to a life of repentance and worship. And we're going to see that this morning in John 5, 1 through 18. So if you would, look at the text with me. I'm reading from the NIV. It may be different on the screens. It may be different in your Bible. But as we move through, um, we'll stay together. So John 5, 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people who were crowding around him and listening to the word, I'm in the wrong book. I'm in Luke. That would have been a really confusing message, okay? Don't listen, don't listen to that sign, okay? John chapter 5, verse 1. I've only read the passage like 86 times this week. you think I would have got it quicker than that, all right? John 5, 1. Sometime later, that sounds right, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there, are, there, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now I want to stop really quickly and just make you aware of something. For some of you, there is a verse 4 here, and for some of you, there is not. And the reason for that is because at some point within the, the transcription of the Bible, there was most likely a scribe who added verse 4, later on after the original context, because he was trying to explain a phenomenon that people thought was happening there. And so most likely, I believe he was probably trying to be helpful by adding this, but when you look at the earliest manuscripts, verse 4 and the end of verse 3 and verse 4 are not there. So one, one crucial element I want you to know is that if the verse 4 is there, it does not change the power of the text for you. But just to be aware, that's why some of you have it in parentheses, some of you don't have it. There may be a note at the bottom of your Bible. But I didn't want us confused in different translations of why it was there and wasn't there. But ultimately, the message of the, of the Scripture is still the same, and we're thankful for that. So here is John chapter 5, then I'm going to go to verse 5. It says, One was there, who was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. 
Verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time that we get to come together, Lord, and see the truth and the beauty of your word. And Lord, I pray this morning that not only would we be amazed at the miracle that takes place in this text, Lord, but it would move us um, to respond rightly in the ways in which you call us to respond when we see the, the, the compassionate and the powerful acts of your, of your grace and mercy, Lord. May, may the Bible not become boring to us. May we never take for granted the ability to read your words that you've given us and see the truth of the Scripture so that we can continuously be changed and transformed by your grace and the gospel. Lord, allow us always to, to treasure this time that we have together in your word. You know, let me pray. Amen. I want us to look at five areas in this text, five statements that point to the realities that are taking place here, okay? So, the first, we have a compassionate question. First, we have a compassionate question. And so now we see we've shifted, right? No longer are we in Galilee, we're in Jerusalem. And with Jerusalem comes more people and more problems, Okay, as you come to Jerusalem, you, you leave Cana, you, you, you enter the religious center of, of Israel, right? The, the, the place where all of the festivals take place. And so there's a festival taking place, and Jesus, being a Jew, returns to Jerusalem for the festival. And you have crowds of people there, but what John gives us is, he shows us that there was, there's a crowd within the crowd. He says in verse Two, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. John gives us a pretty extensive description of this area, right? And so I just want you to imagine for a second, Jerusalem, is, it's, it's bustling with people. There's people everywhere. Think of New York City during Christmas time, right? People walking left and right, celebrating, inviting people into their homes, going to the temple to, to celebrate um, what God has done and the graciousness of God. And it doesn't tell us what festival it is, but festivals always bring people, okay? And within that town, within Jerusalem, there is a pool where there are hundreds of people laying around the pool, sick and broken and herding, and each and every day, as the crowds move towards the temple, they pass this pool on their way. They, they, they move along, and on their, on their way to the temple to, to, to glorify and honor God because of his graciousness, they pass by the very people whom God loves. It is, it is clear from the text that this was an area that would have been well known to those around it. it. It's interesting that up until 1888, most people didn't think that this area actually existed. And then archaeologists found a, a pool under a church that was built in Jerusalem that matches this description exactly. And so why do we say that? Because we're not dealing with 
with theory here. We're dealing with truth. We're dealing with real people who were really lying there, really waiting for water to be stirred, thinking that that would, that would heal the, the infirmities that they had. And so don't ever read the Bible thinking that this is a story that someone made up for your benefit. This is a real Jesus performing real miracles. And so as these people walk by, just imagine, just, just have that image in your mind as people walk by, ignoring and looking past those in desperate need of help. But the reality that we find in verse 6 is that while everybody else walks past, Jesus enters in. You see what it said in verse 6? He says, when he saw the man lying there and knew that he had been sick for a long time, he asked him a question. The only way that Jesus saw the man lying there is that Jesus entered into the place of, of brokenness. He entered into the place of sickness. He entered into the place of mess, and he entered into the place with compassion on his heart. Is this not the story of Jesus' incarnation? Is this not the story of Jesus' first coming? He, did Jesus not step down from his throne in heaven in order to come and, and enter into the human predicament that we all find ourselves in? We see that on display here in Jesus. But something I want us to wrap our minds around is the truth that this is a compassionate act, not primarily because someone enters in, but because of who enters in. You know, a lot of people always say, you know, showing up is caring. For some reason, Charlie recently has gotten in his head, sharing is caring. And that he just says that when he wants my food off my plate. But a lot of people, you know, just, just show up, right? To me, that doesn't make a lot of sense, because if you're broken down on the side of the road, and I show up, and I'm of no help to you, this doesn't seem like a very compassionate act. It's not compassion for me to show up with an inability to help you whatsoever. As I thought about this, I thought of my, some of my favorite commercials from several years back. And there's this commercial where there's a plane full of people. And someone begins to have a medical emergency on the plane. And so the flight attendant stands up and says, this woman needs help, this woman needs help. So a guy jumps out of his seat and he runs down to the front and he does all these tests and he's looking at the woman and making sure everything's... And eventually the guy says, don't worry, ma'am, you'll be fine. And the flight attendant says, oh, thank you, doctor. He says, oh, I'm not a doctor. I just stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. And so was it compassionate for that man to go down there and... And, and, and say that he could be helpful when he is of no help at all. No, that's not compassion. But what we find here in this passage is it's not a random person who enters into this situation and, 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 and speaks into this man's life. It is the Savior of the universe. So what makes this passage so compassionate and this act so com compassionate is who it is that enters in. So in this scenario, there's one man... In particular, Jesus moved towards. And in verse 5, it says the man has been an invalid for 38 years. He's unable to walk. 38 years was longer than the average lifespan at this time for a man in Jerusalem. 38 years was longer than Jesus had been on the earth in his bodily form. And so here we have a man who's been sick and hurting for a very, very, very long time. And Jesus enters in and speaks up. Not only does Jesus enter in, but he speaks up. And this is what he says. He says, sir, do you want to get well? 
What a question. Do you want to get well? Jesus knows the man's predicament. The word for knows there, or mine says learned, but the word for knows means he had a divine knowledge. He had an intimate knowledge of the man's situation. There's a saying that no one knows you better than you know yourself. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one who does know you better than you know yourself, and his name is Jesus. And so as he enters in, he sees the man. You, you serve a Savior who sees you. And you serve a Savior who knows you. He knows the man's desperate need. And so he enters in and he asks the man the question, do you want to get well? Out of all the profound statements that Jesus could have made to this man, he asks what seems like a, a simple question. Sir, do you want to get well? We just mentioned that Jesus knows the man's condition. He knows the turmoil of his, of his life. Why would Jesus ask such a question is because when Jesus asks this question, he doesn't do it to learn information. He does it to expose the man's need. When Jesus interrupts your life with questions, he does not do it because he does not know the answer. He does it so that you will see how badly you need him. As I thought about this, I considered a few other places where Jesus asked questions in the Bible. Just before this, in John chapter 4, Jesus came to a Samaritan woman and he said, Will you get me a drink? And the reason he asked this question was to expose her need for the living water that only he could give her. In John chapter 21, three times he asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? He did not ask this question because he wasn't sure of Peter's love. He wanted Peter to know how badly he needed heartfelt reconciliation with Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, as Paul was, or Saul was walking down the road, the first thing that Jesus said to Saul was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because he wanted to expose in Saul's life a desperate need of, of repentance and a changing of heart. And so what we find is that Jesus isn't asking a dumb question. He's asking the question that the man needs to hear. And so many of you may think as you read your Bibles, and as the Holy Spirit works in your life, there may be times where, where Jesus asks you a question through his word. Bryson, aren't you tired of being angry with your children? Neil, how about just 10 minutes of prayer today? Aren't you, aren't you tired of that temptation always, always taking over your life? Aren't you, aren't you tired of, of, of being in this spot? Don't, and, and for some of us in here who have never given our life to Christ, Jesus may be asking you the question this morning, don't you want to get well? And that question is not because Jesus doesn't know what's best for you and doesn't know the answer. That question is to, to expose in you a, a great need that you have and that he can take care of. Jesus doesn't ask questions without having the needed answer. He doesn't expose sin in your life that he can't make well. And so as we look at this passage, I just want you to know is that when Jesus interrupts your life by asking you a question, he does so to compassionately expose a need that he desires to heal. And so this man, laying here for 38 years, is approached by the king of the universe, and Jesus says compassionately, don't you, do you want to get healed?
And I believe that that's a question we all must answer. Don't you, do you want to get healed? So first we have a compassionate question. Secondly, we have a powerful word. A powerful word. As, as we move to verse 7, we see the man's response. And I don't know about you, but after 38 years of lying there in desperate need, I would have assumed that the man's response would have been, Yes, please. Do you want to get well? Yes, please. Please help me. But we don't see that. What we see is that the man actually responds by explaining more of his brokenness and more of his need. Look at verse 7. He says, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And so this man's life, for 38 years, he's been fixated on this pool because he believes that the pool is the source of his healing. 38 years, he's, he's, he's laid there with his eyes fixated on this pool of water, each day hoping if the water was stirred by whatever means it was stirred that that he could get to the pool first because there was this belief that the pool could provide for him what he needed. He says, listen, I have nobody. I have no one to help me get there. No one to help me get to the pool. And I I wonder if, if, if just for a moment the man looked at Jesus and thought, maybe you can get me there. You know, maybe Jesus can get me to the pool. This, this guy's actually wondering if I'm okay. He's entered into my life. He's asked me a question. Maybe, maybe he'll get me to the water. Might it be that Jesus could be the means to his intended end? And my fear is that many of us see Jesus this way that we see Jesus as a means to an end. Some of us may not see a pool for healing, but there is some object, some achievement, some place that in our mind will fix our deepest need. And so often we see Jesus as a way to get there. As I thought about this, I thought back to my senior year of high school, which is becoming farther and farther away. Uh, But I was looking at and thinking about a booklet that we printed for my senior year of baseball. I played baseball all four years in high school. I was a great left out, okay? I was, I was a great bench player, okay? I was very encouraging, <laughs> all right? But in our booklet for the senior year, we had 12 seniors. And in that booklet, your parents could write a little note, you know, good job, buddy, like proud of you, all those kind of things. And I kid you not, in eight out of the 12 books right under the final signature of the parents was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a great verse. It's a wonderful verse. But the issue becomes that many parents use that verse as a way to think, maybe Jesus can, get a, can be a tool to get my kids where I want them to go. You know, often when we think of Philippians 4.13, that's the way we think of it. I can do all things, everything that I want to do, every place that I want to go, my intended end, Jesus can be a tool that gets me there. So just like education and just like extracurriculars, we believe that that Jesus can be something to help our kids get where we think that they need to go. And parents, I want you to feel my love when I say this. You are not God. 
and you don't know the best place for your children ultimately. I want you to feel my heart when I say this, because I think of the number of parents who, who think if, if their child can just get to a certain place, and if Jesus can just help them get there, then, then everything's going to be okay. The reality of this is that your, your, your child doesn't need something down there, they need Jesus. Jesus is not a means to salvation, Jesus himself is our salvation. The actual context of Philippians 4.13 is Paul saying, listen, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, whether I'm in a castle or whether I'm in a dungeon, I have all I need if I have Christ. And so I would say put that verse on everything you can, but know what it means. And so this man looks at Jesus and he says, Maybe he can get me to the pool. I have no one to get me there. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. I love that, at once, immediately. The same thing we saw last week with the official son. What time did did my son get well? One o'clock in the afternoon. That's exactly when Jesus said he would. And the reason that Jesus speaks this way is because he wants the man to know, I don't need any help healing you. Jesus doesn't need any help. He has all that he needs within his own divine being. He doesn't need any help. He is the healer. In a matter of seconds, Jesus made 38 years of despair disappear. Muscles listened to Jesus. Fibers listened to Jesus. Blood flowed through this man's legs for the first time in 38 years because Jesus spoke and it happened. Could Jesus have healed this man by taking him down to the pool? Of course he could. Jesus healed a man of of blindness by rubbing some mud on his eyes twice. But in this instance, we needed to see the immediacy of Jesus' healing. We needed to know that he is not a means to an end, but he is the end in himself. One of my favorite preachers to listen to is Alistair Begg. And... In one of his messages, he talks about the thief on the cross. Talk about a terrible situation to be in, right? You talk about hopelessness. You're hanging on a cross hours from death, right? That's hopelessness. And he describes the scenario when the thief gets to heaven. And the angels are standing there and they say, you know, how did you get here? Like, how how did you make it here? They said, do you know what it means to be justified by faith alone? And the, the thief on the cross says, got no idea what that means. Do you know what it means? Have you read the entire scriptures? All, no, he says, I, have, I haven't. I haven't read all the scriptures. That, the New Testament's not written yet. I couldn't get to that point. And eventually they ask, how did you make it here? What, what healed you? What saved you? And the thief on the cross says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The reality is this, that Jesus is the one who saves. It's in his word alone is the power and the authority, and he is not a means to salvation. He is salvation. Number three, we have a prideful response. A prideful response. So at the end of verse nine, we get a little nugget of information we didn't know yet, which is the fact that this is the Sabbath. Okay, and you can guarantee, stamp it, that if it's the Sabbath, somehow the Jewish leaders are going to be involved. 
So not long after this, as expected, here they come, and they find the man. The man's got his mat. He's been healed. He's walking. We're going to see in a minute that they find him. Jesus finds him later in the temple, so maybe he's on his way to the temple at this point. We don't know, but they stop the man. They say, listen, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. I just want you to think about that for a second. This man hasn't walked in 38 years, and they're saying, hey, cut it out, dude. Can't carry your mat. It's the Sabbath. This language may sound strange to us, but the Jews, to the Jews, this would have been a normal topic of conversation. Every Sabbath, there was probably Sabbath police that walked around making sure nobody was messing up the Sabbath. Now, there's no true Old Testament um, law or, or story that states that it's unlawful to carry your mat on the Sabbath. So how did they get here? How did, these, how did these Jewish leaders get to a place where they looked at this man and, and, and condemned him for carrying his mat on the way to the temple? How did they get there, right? Some, do you ever think, how did we get here? How do I get to a place that I'm yelling at my wife on, on Christmas because I can't get the tree in the stand? Like, how did we get here, right? And so I just want to, I want to, share with you an Old Testament scripture that may have been the beginnings of this. And I just, just stay with me for a moment, okay? I want to I show us the, 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 the road to this type of thinking, okay? So in Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah addresses the issue of working on the Sabbath. This is what it says in Nehemiah 13, starting in verse 15. Nehemiah speaking, he says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain, and loading it on donkeys, together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads, and they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Verse 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought this calamity on us in the city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So Nehemiah 13 says that Nehemiah said, hey, stop desecrating the Sabbath. Stop working. Stop doing all this crazy stuff and focus on God. That was, that's the Bryson version of Nehemiah 13. In this instance, what Nehemiah is doing is protecting the Sabbath from being desecrated and forgotten. It is clear that the Jewish people were treating the Sabbath at that time as any other day. But here, here's the issue is that these leaders now, over time, fixated so much on the rules and regulations found in Nehemiah 13 that they missed the heart of the passage. They obsessed so much over the rules and regulations and thought so highly of themselves that they took such scriptures as this and used them to create more and more laws in order to separate themselves from other people. And so it was their pride that drove them to walk up to this man and say, you can't carry your mat because the Bible says so. We know for a fact that often when you become obsessive, you will become excessive. When you become obsessive, you will become excessive. Recently, my brother-in-law came back around Thanksgiving and he's gotten really really into disc golf. I don't know if you ever played disc golf. Uh, pretty fun. Okay. Anyway around Thanksgiving 
myself and my brother-in-law, Brett, and my father-in-law, Stephen, we all went to Hobbs Farm. They got a really nice course, and we played disc golf. This was my father-in-law's first time ever playing disc golf. And it created an obsession that turned quickly into an excessive behavior. Okay, I just want to let you know that within a matter of a week, they played like five times. It was 38 degrees and raining, and they were on the disc golf course playing disc golf. Listen, it was the day that Brooke and I were supposed to go to the hospital to have the baby, and we're trying to walk the baby out of Brooke in Hobby Lobby, and we get a phone call from Stephen saying, hey, will you check and see if they have any disc golfs there? They have any discs for disc golf there? Get me one. While we're, we're about to have a, his grandchild. And so what we find is that obsession leads to excessive behavior. And the problem with the Jewish leaders is they, ex, they obsessed over the wrong part of the Scripture. Rather than obsessing over the fact that we are to keep the Sabbath holy at that time to glorify God, they obsessed over the part where we're supposed to stop doing other things. Later on in this passage, if they would have kept reading their Bibles, later on in Nehemiah 13, in verse 22, Nehemiah says this. Listen, after he's given these rules, after he's given these regulations, Nehemiah says in chapter 13, verse 22, he says, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. So at the end of this passage where Nehemiah reformed the rules and, and, and pointed people to keep the Sabbath, he looked up at God and said, have mercy on me. Why? Because Nehemiah never, sent, never lost his sense of need for the grace of God. Nehemiah did not put in rules to put in rules. He put in rules to glorify God. The real problem is that pride will always blind us of the gloriousness of God's grace. Pride will always blind us of the gloriousness of God's grace. And excessive pride almost always leads to excessive skepticism. I'm afraid that as religious people, I have, I have become so obsessed sometimes with the demise of the culture that I often and blinded to the way that God's still graciously working in the world. We become so fixated on all the things that are going wrong that we're unable to see the things that are going right. When the people, when the, when the Jewish leaders, look at this. Everybody look together with me. I'm going to treat you like my students. Everybody look at your Bible. All right. Look together with me at verse 11. They say, it's, it's, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Verse 11, but he replied, the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. And look at what the Jewish leader said. Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? What is their response missing? The healing. The man says, I just got healed from being unable to walk for 38 years. And that guy who healed me told me to pick up my mat and walk. 
And they said, who's this fellow that told you to pick up your mat and walk? Completely blind to the fact that God had just graciously worked through Jesus Christ to make this man well. That's what pride does. Pride will get you so fixated on yourself that you're unable to see Jesus working in the lives of other people. It'll make you so skeptical of what's going on around you that you'll miss the fact that you have lost a sense of need within you. Jesus says the real problem later on in John chapter 5, he says in verse 39, to these same people, he says the real problem is you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures though that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I pray that you obsess over the Bible. I pray that it becomes your obsession. I got a new Bible. Isn't it pretty? Okay, I even took a picture of it last night and put it on social media because I think it's so pretty. All right? Smells really good. If you want to sniff it later, you're welcome to, okay? But here's the thing. If I read the Bible focused on my abilities rather than my need, the Bible loses its beauty. This is, this is a, a, such a pretty Bible, but if I read my Bible fixated on me rather than fixated on Jesus, then it loses its intended end. The Bible was written with Christ at the middle, not you. And the Bible was written with grace in every word of every page. And so let us not obsess over the wrong things. That will lead us to respond with pride to every person we encounter. Number four, we have a purposeful warning. I'm almost done. Number four, a purposeful warning. In verse 14, we see a similar situation to the beginning of our text. So in verse 6, Jesus saw the man and he knew his condition. In verse 14, Jesus found the man and it is apparent that Jesus still knew his condition. Right? Look at verse 14 with me. It says, later Jesus found him the man at the temple. Isn't that interesting? The man's already been healed. Right? He's already got his, he's already got his legs working. He's already been healed. Why does he need a second interaction with Jesus? What we're going to find out is that this man has had a location change, but the problem is he hasn't had a heart change. He's obviously put his legs to work. He picked up his mat, and he's walked to the temple. He's even walking to a good place, right? If I'm going to walk anywhere, why not go to the place where God dwells with his people, right? So he picks up his mat, and he walks to the temple, and we don't really know why he's in there. Maybe it's the first time he's ever got to be part of these festivities. And he says, listen, I've, heard, I've seen people walk by this pool every day or every other day for the past 38 years, and so I'm going to the temple to see what all this stuff is about. And so he goes to the temple. There's a great shift that's taking place in this man's life. He's no longer lying by the pool, but he's standing in the temple. Jesus has healed this man, but the problem is the man has changed locations, but his eternity hasn't changed. He's been made well in his legs, but his heart is still wicked. When I think about this, I think about my son, Charlie, he, he comes up a lot. If only he knew how many times he comes up in these sermons. But oftentimes, Charlie will, he's, three, three has been hard. 
okay? Terrible twos wasn't a thing, but when he turned three, he turned on the attitude, I'll tell you that much. And so there's many times where he'll give me one of these. <sighs> I'm like, ooh, Charlie, all right? Give you one, anybody, any parent ever got a huff? Some of y'all got a, you know, some of y'all got a huff and a puff too. And I'll tell Charlie, that's a timeout, right? And so I'll pick him up and I said, don't you huff like that at me. So we're in the living room, he's watching TV, so I'll pick him up and go put him in a chair in the kitchen and I'll sit him in that chair and on the way out, I'll hear, <sighs> And eventually we lead to something more than timeout, okay? But I want you to notice that changing Charlie's location didn't change his heart, Right? I love church. I miss it when I'm not there, but you showing up here and sitting in a seat is not going to change your heart. Taking up space is not going to change your heart. And I think you need to be here. I'm not, I'm not pushing anybody out. I'm just calling you to recognize that location change doesn't mean that your soul's been changed. Because the temple couldn't do it, and this building can't do it. Only Jesus can do that. And so what does he say to the man? He gives him a warning. And a lot of us don't like warnings because we don't like to think of Jesus as warning people, but this is a necessary warning. And this is as clear as a warning you can get. Jesus says, listen, your legs have been made well. See, you are well again. Stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. Jesus is primary concern for all people is their spiritual health above their physical health. Now it would, be in, it would be a lie to say that God does not care about your body. It would be a lie. We read that in the Bible all the time, but if you want to get to the heart of Jesus' message, when he said the sick are the ones who need, to be, who need a doctor, not the, not the well, he was speaking of our spiritual condition above our physical condition. Jesus makes it clear in his statement to the man that his physical healing was meant to be a catalyst for a life lived of holiness. While we all have different physical needs, which the Bible tells us God cares about, the truth is that Jesus' primary concern is our most common need, the need for a Savior the need for transformation, the need to be made well spiritually. This man's newfound health will be of no value to him if it becomes another means of sinful living. If rather than lying there and sinning, he can walk around and sin, then no real significant change has taken place. Jesus has the power to heal physically, Yet everything that Jesus does is centered on the idea that you need to be made well spiritually. He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What's worse than 38 years of inability to walk and eternity without Christ? What's worse than 38 years of physical ailment and eternity of separation from God? Jesus says, I don't, I don't want you just to walk here. I want you to walk with me in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is compassionate and gracious 
and loving. And when we fixate on the grace of God, we will meet people's physical needs, but we can't leave them without speaking about their spiritual needs. That's what James says in James chapter 1. He said, what religion does, what religion does God seem, see as worthy? It's taking care of widows and orphans and also not allowing yourselves to be polluted by the world. They go hand in hand. Your spiritual transformation to become more like Christ leads to your spiritual transformation to care for those in need. Jesus does both. And so, what is Jesus' intended response to the sign of this healing? Repent. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. Don't waste God's grace by clinging to a life of unrepentance. In my life, I've seen people healed, and I've seen people endure great suffering. My grandmother was very, very sick for 20 years. And what did she say for for 20 years? She suffered well. She saw her sickness as a catalyst to holy living for God. She could only lay in a bed for a long time, but she laid in her bed and she wrote cards to people who she knew were hurting. She laid in her bed and she prayed for her grandkids. Does sickness stink? Yes, it does. But sickness can be used as a catalyst for God's grace. But also so can healing. I got to have a conversation with Mr. Durell when he walked in. Most of you may not know this, but Durell's a miracle. Seven and a half years ago, right, Durell? He got a new liver. And tomorrow, Durell turned 75. But you know what happened when Durell got that new liver? He saw God's grace and he's used it to glorify God and live a life of holy living. Each of us is offered the ability to respond rightly, to respond rightly to God's grace. But the true grace of God is costly. One of my favorite historical figures is Dietrich Bonhoeffer who lost his life, actually, for his faith in Germany during the Nazi regime in the 1940s. But this is what he says. He says, this, and I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to read the whole quote. I have a big one, but I'm just going to read a small part. He, ta- he talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He says, cheap grace can leave you unchanged. But this is what he says about costly grace. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, but it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. The grace of God is costly because it calls you to follow, but it's grace because it calls you to follow Jesus. Above all, this grace is costly because God knows how much it costs. It costs the life of his own son. And so we see here the need for a purposeful warning that it is not just enough to see God's grace, we are to live in it. True resurrection power is the ability to live holy lives. You don't need a physical miracle to experience a miracle. Your salvation is miracle enough in and of itself. And lastly, we have a pivotal truth. I just want us to see verse 17, okay? A pivotal truth. Of course, the authorities, they they show back up and they ask Jesus once again about his healing. And it says in verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. 
So they come to him and they say, how can you be healing these people on the Sabbath? How can you be doing these things? And Jesus says, my father is always at his work to this very day. And so I too am working. What do we find here? Jesus telling them, God is my father. I am God. And so God never stops working and neither do I. If God were to cease to stop working at all, right, then he works in upholding and governing the world and continuing the species of being and all the creatures in their being. He, if, if, if God was not working, the world would fall in on itself. So Jesus says, I never stop working because my father never start, stops working. The redemptive work of Jesus to save souls is not segmented to one, two, three, four, five, or six days of the week. Jesus saves each and every day. His work never stops. And so Jesus makes it clear that just as his father must work, he must work. And I want you to, to understand this. The, the ultimate sign of God's work is not this man's healing, but it's the cross. The ultimate sign of Jesus' compassion and his power, the ultimate sign of our call to humility and holy living is not that this man was made well, but that Jesus went to the cross. There's a work that we will remember this morning that is greater than the lame man walking. We remember the work of the cross, that Jesus took on your shoulders his sin, the fact that Jesus defeated sin and hell. We remember his work of, 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 of being and taking on the wrath of God on our part. We remember the greatest of works, which is the cross of Christ. And so as we come together for communion this morning, I want to ask you a question. And a question I hope that you will consider as we take communion. Do you want to get well? Because here we remember the way that... To, the way to healing. We remember the way to be made well. It's only through the cross of Christ, it's only through the sacrifice of Jesus that you can be made well for eternity. The Bible says that one day we will have new resurrection bodies. But only those who weigh the cost of the grace that they've been shown now will walk in resurrection bodies. You will be healed then, physically, if you've been healed now, spiritually. And so that is our response. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for our grace, your grace that you've shown us, Lord. And uh, Lord, as we consider our need, Lord, we're, I'm so thankful that you are a God who shows up not just to speak and not just to be present, but to, to work and to heal and to make well and to make whole, Lord. I pray that we would know that that it takes the, the work of a miracle in our, in our hearts and in our souls to be made well with you. As Ephesians 2 says, Lord, that, that it is a death-to-life experience. And then true life begins when we give up our life for the life that you provide for us. Lord, I pray that this morning as we come around this time of communion, Lord, that we would not just take communion because it's what we do, Lord, but that we would take communion as we remember, Lord, what you've done. Lord, help this not to be a, a familiar work of ours, Lord, but for us to remember the miracle of your work on the cross, Lord, as we take this together.
you know me pray. Amen.
All right, let's sing the family of God together this morning. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. Y'all have a great week.